0: You're listening
1: to a Roddenberry podcast.
2: Hold on there, partner. We'll be right back. But right now, time for tales from the mean streets with Genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast.
1: Episode 11, Mental Patient. Welcome to Mission Log Genealogy. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm a
2: large, strangely-dressed man known as Earl Green. Each week on Genealogy, we're on the lookout for morals, meanings, and messages in Gene Roddenberry's early TV writing, long
1: before he created Star Trek. This week, we are back with our review of Mental Patient, the third of Gene's scripts written for the series Highway Patrol, a 1950s cop show that Gene wrote five scripts for under the pen name of Robert Wesley. I'll be right back with trivia right after Norm tells all of you how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at Roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now, here is Earl Green with this week's trivia. Thank you very much, Norm. As
2: with Gene's other episodes of Highway Patrol, the shows are out there if you want to find them. In our case, we're also looking at the final master script, dated December 7th, 1955, from the Roddenberry Archives. But again... This script has blue pages indicating revisions made on December 12th, 1955. As best we can tell, and as always, remember that there's no such thing as a single air date for a syndicated show, Mental Patient aired on or around April 9, 1956. Even though Highway Patrol is a very mainstream cop show, our guest cast this week is stacked with some genre TV and film royalty. Guest-starring in a tiny role as a nameless highway patrolman is actor Kirk Allen, whose career had seen better days. Kirk is, of course, best known for being the screen's first live-action Superman, the first actor to don the costume of the Man of Steel in the 13-part Superman film serial that premiered in 1948 and again in 1950's Adam Man vs. Superman. His post-Superman career never quite reached the heights of either a bird or a plane again, sadly. In fact, many of his appearances in later films and TV were uncredited, including a cameo as General Sam Lane in the first Christopher Reeve Superman movie, an Easter egg if there ever was one. Later appearances included minor guest-starring roles in I Dream of Genie, The Donna Reed Show, Dennis the Menace, and even an episode of the original Battlestar Galactica. Guest-starring as Clarence is Anthony George, a familiar face to fans of Dark Shadows. He appeared in 49 episodes of that series, first taking over the role of Burke Devlin from future Riker dad Mitchell Ryan, and then originating the role of Jeremiah Collins. Frequently credited as Tony George, Anthony was a fixture of 1950s and 60s TV, and appeared as a regular in the soap Search for Tomorrow as Dr. Tony Vincente in the 1970s. Byron Keith is here putting in the last of five guest spots on Highway Patrol, usually as Officer Ellsworth, though in one episode, he was Officer Peterson. He was one of the stars of the late 50s spy series of The Man Called X, and you might also remember him as Mayor Lindseed from the Adam West Batman series, or as Lieutenant Roy Gilmore, a recurring character who appeared in nearly half of the episodes of 77 Sunset Strip. As Lucy Clifford, Risa Royce's resume may not be a long one, but she was a pioneer in the industry, serving as assistant director of the movie A Woman of the Sea in 1926. She appeared in frequent guest roles in the 1950s, including two episodes of Zib's science fiction theater series, an episode of another Zib series, Sea Hunt, and in One Step Beyond, Mr. Ed and Mission Impossible. Appearing as Milo Hobson, Frank Fenton, was another frequent flyer of 50s TV, with appearances in Dragnet, Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, and a further episode of Highway Patrol, though as a different character. He played a recurring role in West Point, Gene's first series as a staff writer, though he did not appear in any episodes written by Gene. And sadly, that is one of the final entries on Frank's CV, as he died a little over a year after this episode of Highway Patrol aired. And finally, Terry Frost also appeared as Sergeant Morse in Reformed Criminal, and he's actually a recurring player on Highway Patrol. He appears in 20 episodes over the show's first three seasons.
1: Can I help you?
0: I'm Milo Hobson, friend of the dead man. Now, if you can put two and two together, cop, you know why I'm riding with you and what I'm hunting.
1: We appreciate the offer, Mr. Hobson, but we're not allowed to carry civilians. Those 12s can be dangerous. We'd appreciate you being careful
0: with it. Maybe you didn't hear me. I'm the dead man's friend. And I'm a free citizen of a free state, which gives me the right to bear arms and arrest felons. Now... You read your law books
1: and you've learned something. I'm acquainted with the law. I'm suggesting. Well,
0: then you're one of the few cops that is. Now listen. We got radios here. The whole town knows a maniac killed Burr. I'm making sure he's got right.
1: Just a minute. No one knows who or what killed Burr. We've got a suspect, but that's all he is a suspect.
0: He's a maniac killer!
1: I can't stop you from making a legal arrest, Mr. Hobson, but I suggest that you cool down. Think twice before you use your gun.
0: You forget about me and think about getting us some protection. Lots of cops around when you miss a stop sign. Where are they now? Some cafe. Talking to a waitress.
2: Dan Matthews of the California Highway Patrol takes on cases where criminals may be on the move or on the run and brings them back to face justice. This is just one of his cases on the Highway Patrol. Act 1. It starts with a dead body and goes downhill from there. The body of Edward Burr is discovered on his farm and foul play is strongly suspected. And there's already a rough outline of a suspect a large, strangely-dressed man seen near Burr's farm. The one thing that could conclusively tie the suspect to the scene is that Burr was found in a muddy pen, so the suspect will also be muddy. Dan Matthews of the Highway Patrol is skeptical that a match to the mud in Burr's pen will be evidence enough. After all, they couldn't even find a murder weapon at the scene. An autopsy of Burr is forthcoming, but the search for a suspect can't wait. And then more news comes in that seems to add up to the Burr case. A patient escaped from the hospital's mental ward overnight. And cut to a large man in muddy hospital pajamas trying to sneak a drink from the farm. The owner of the farm spots him and chases the man off and then calls the highway patrol. Armed with the farmer's sighting and the description of the missing mental patient, it all seems to add up. Matthews and as many of his highway patrol units as he can spare prepare to begin a full-scale search near that farm. Matthews has just gotten into his car when a man armed with a rifle just climbs into the back seat. This is Milo Hobson. He says he's a friend of the murder victim, and he demands to take part in the search. Matthews kindly but sternly tells Hobson that he can't allow a civilian to take part in a police operation, and that Hobson needs to leave the gun at home before someone gets hurt. Hobson quickly turns against Matthews, deploying just about every anti-police insult in the book. If Matthews wasn't in Hobson's corner before, well, he is definitely not on Team Hobson now. The mental patient, a gentle giant named Clarence, enters another farmhouse without an invitation. He's looking for food and settles on grabbing a knife to slice a piece off of a loaf of bread. When the phone in the house rings, he's discovered by the owner of the house, Lucy Clifford. She asks Clarence to hand the knife over, which he does. She invites him to sit and eat at the table like a civilized human being and tells him he needs a bath and a change of clothes. She's not afraid of him, especially not after Clarence, out of habit, says grace over his food. Clarence tells Lucy that he's crazy, but she seems doubtful of this. Most of all, Lucy knows Clarence needs help. Overhearing a police radio conversation about no one answering the phone at Lucy Clifford's farm, Hobson, on his own but still armed, Heads that way. Act 2 Clarence has gotten cleaned up and Lucy has given him new clothes that belonged to her late father. But when Hobson just walks into her house armed, Lucy is less charitable than she was to Clarence. Hobson practically interrogates her about who's been in her house and Lucy politely tells him to get off her property even after Hobson says he's searching for a killer. But Lucy's not impressed and when Hobson tries to intimidate her She stands her ground, and she is not happy. The only man who has threatened her today has been Milo Hobson. He leaves just as Matthews arrives. Lucy cooperates with Matthews, but when she tells him where Clarence is, it seems that Clarence has already escaped. Matthews urgently radios for backup from his car, and upon seeing that Hobson's car is still parked at Lucy's farm, also advises his fellow officers that there's another dangerous wild card in the mix, Hobson himself. Matthews issues orders to arrest Hobson for interference with a law enforcement operation. He also has an officer take Clarence's dirty pajamas to the lab to see if the mud matches with Burr's farm. How about another wild card? Lucy is outstanding in her field, looking for Clarence as well, and hoping to find him and reassure him so he doesn't do anything unpredictable that'll get him shot. Matthews is at Lucy's house looking for her when her phone rings. It's the crime lab calling for him. The mud on Clarence's hospital pajamas do not match the mud from Burr's farm. And there's another new wrinkle that changes everything. Burr died of a heart attack, not any other kind of attack. But that doesn't stop Milo Hobson from starting to shoot his rifle indiscriminately when he catches a glimpse of Clarence on the run. Lucy finds Clarence and calms him down, reciting a verse from Matthew 25. Hobson, who still thinks he's hunting a crazed killer, draws down on both of them. Matthews and another highway patrol officer arrive, and Hobson is ordered to drop his gun, which he does. But he doesn't stop his strident criticism of Matthews. Hobson is arrested on two counts of assault with a deadly weapon and is taken away for booking. But Clarence still needs to be taken back to the hospital. Matthews suggests to Lucy that she should talk to Clarence's doctors because she could become a vital part of his treatment. The
1: end. Wonderfully brief yet poignant recap, and I think that uh, I'm I'm glad that you chose that uh, brevity because we need to get into the heart of the matter of of this particular episode. Starting with a musical number, I know that the fans of Mission Log are are akin, you know, are, are keen to our musical numbers. So let's start with something that was brought to our attention earlier. And I'm going to. I'm going to do my best here. It's no Broadway performance, but it's worth paying uh, a small fee for, at least 25 cents. Highway Highway Patrol! Patrol.
2: Highway Patrol! Okay, so we have to give a shout out to Alan in the Mission Log Discord for pointing out that you can sing Highway Patrol to the show's four-note theme tune. And what's funny about that theme tune is it's just those four notes, and we're going to change key on it. But, mm-hmm. you know, whoever did the music, man, they only pay me for these four notes. That's what they're getting. Highway patrol, highway patrol. And, you know, now I can't unhear that. Now, dear
1: listeners, you can't either uh, send your thanks to Alan for that. Yep, that's right. Uh, all the emails to uh, alan at uh, com. So, yeah, thanks, Alan, for that. Oh, but great observation. Um Interesting enough though the final master script we have a date of December 7th 1955 this is 14 years to the day after Pearl Harbor so this is the script that lives in infamy in a way Yeah I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about that and mm-hmm. I
2: don't know I can't really find a bearing on the story but it's you know it is kind of interesting to point out that you know this would have been an anniversary that would have been much more raw and present in people's minds at the time than it is perhaps for later generations. Now, going by that first inside page of the script, which is the page listing the characters and the needed locations and sets to pull the story off, I notice that we're kind of consistently, with Highway Patrol, coming in with a two-to-one ratio of location shooting over studio filming. That's kind of interesting. That's that's pretty much the opposite of Mr. District Attorney. And it's kind of amusing also because there are some notes in there where Gene has put, we need a four-way intersection. Any highway will do. He has that note in there a couple of times, like, I don't care where this is. Well, that's a far cry from Patrol Boat when he had obviously visited a marina that he thought would be a great location for a show, practically giving you GPS-level instructions on where to go.
1: It's funny, because I don't think we've actually seen or have uh, Gene return to that specificity like in his scripts. Like, this is what I want you to shoot. This is where I want you to shoot it. This is the time of day. This is the lighting that I want.
2: Yeah. Part of this is learning the craft, learning what to leave open so people can
1: interpret your work. Highway patrol. Highway patrol. I can't not stop singing that out louder in my head. This is Alan's fault. All the emails again. Alan at Why Did You Put This exactly. In My com.
2: And you know, also on that page that lists the, you know, the dramatis personae. As compassionate as the script is toward Clarence, I face palmed a bit because on that page, Clarence is described as escaped psycho. And elsewhere in the script, the phrase mentally retarded is rolled out in dialogue to describe Clarence and I don't want to belabor the point too much because, you know, it's a whole different age. I'm glad that we are now in an age where most people know to discuss these things in kinder terms.
1: And I'm glad that, you know, where Matthews is concerned, that he didn't kind of like belabor that particular point. It was a reference of the time. But um, knowing that we know of Gene and, and knowing that we know of maybe the dialogue that he wrote, that that was, that's simply what it was. It was very kind of Typical, you know, of the reference. I even think that uh, when he called, he was on a phone call with uh, someone from the mental ward. And it seems like, I mean, it rubbed me the wrong way hearing it. But at the time, 1955, that was the nomenclature of that particular ward, you know, of a hospital. What I did like, though, about the beginning of this episode is that we had a scene that we haven't seen so far yet, like in in basically the cadence of an episode. We had the science aspect first, and then kind of like the suspect investigation next. So you had Al, you know, the forensic pathologist, and he said that Edward Byrne was beaten to death or supposedly beaten to death by a large man with large, broad shoulders. But we don't know the facts about this, so I'm going to put a pin in this until we get to the references for Act 2. Well... Uh, I, I almost kind of want to address that now because it's in the it's in the opening
2: VO, which again is not Matthews. It's the show's omnipresent narrator. The homicide is characterized by extreme brutality. Where did they get extreme brutality? Because the guy had a heart attack. They can't find a weapon. I, oh, did he fall into the pig pen and they he started munching on him? I mean,
1: what is this? That's what I wanted to get to. Thank you for bringing that up because it was Broderick Crawford as Dan Matthews and him not narrating his own voiceover at the very beginning of the show, as you said, because the voiceover narration sets the tone for better or worse about this particular antagonist that we're supposed to focus on. Now, if in contrast to Mr. District Attorney, you had David Bryant as Paul Garrett doing his own voiceover, which added a lot of texture, you know, and a lot of credibility to Paul Garrett, you know, the the character of Paul Garrett actually talking about the case that he was on. But when you have the, kind of like this other voice, this omniscient voice, you know, that's voicing over what Dan Matthews, I think, should be voicing over, kind of takes you out of the Just scene, doesn't bit. it? The
2: actor's name is Art Gilmore, the impartial third-party voice that brings in the narration in each episode. And... You know, definitely one of those old old school VO pros. He sounds like he's standing seven feet tall, and he's broad-shouldered. Maybe he beat the guy to death. I don't know. You know, he you know he just has that big authoritative sound. And then we get to Matthews, and I don't know if you noticed this in this episode, Matthews was more rapid fire with his delivery, with his line readings in this episode than he was in either of the previous two. You know, it kind of reminds—I forget if it's Firesign Theater or Saturday Night or early Saturday Night Live, where they were making fun of the emergency broadcast system and said, "This is only a test." If this had been an actual emergency, I would have been talking a lot faster. You know, it, it kind of picks up that cadence—a
1: deluge yes. of Matthews, if you will.
2: There's a lot of blank space on page five A. Some of these revisions introduce extra pages to the script, so you have page five and then page 5A before you have page 6, because you want to leave page 6 alone. And then you also have a page 8A. And then you have other pages that omit a lot of scenes. And a lot of these extra pages, you know, it's a full page, and then page 5A or AA or what have you. It's like this much dialogue. It really makes me curious what the earlier drafts looked like that... Material was added, cut down, and it was felt we need less of this here. We need more of this here.
1: I mean, going all the way back to uh, like Mr. District Attorney, I've always been curious about why a single paragraph, maybe at like the top of a page, a blue page, and then the rest of the page is blank. I'm wondering if that's like a revisions page, if they just left that for notes. I don't really quite understand the, the professional script format of like why those things were done, as you're saying, because it just seems so. Inconsistent or haphazard when it comes to a final script. In some cases, like I said,
2: you you know you want to keep the page count where everything is. You have to maintain the scene numbers. You can't throw that off, or your production secretary or whoever has to retype the whole document. So you're trying to avoid that,
1: right? Yeah, as part of like kind of like the Ziv uh, way of reducing the amount of costs, that probably goes all the way to people who are doing the rewrites. You know the. You know, typing out all these scripts, et cetera, et cetera. There was an interesting scene, and I'm not sure how it landed with you, but I thought it was a little convoluted for me. It's a scene where Matthews and Sergeant Corey are like in frame together. They're having these separate conversations on the phone with Matthews in the foreground and Corey in the background, and it's kind of like a talking head scene. I know that it's trying to convey kind of like the chaos of the moment. That's what's happening. Like all this information is coming into Highway Patrol HQ. It adds to the chaos, but at the same time, I think it obfuscates a very specific and very important line of dialogue. So the doctor that uh, Matthews is talking to, okay, so the doctor says, uh, you say the the patient Clarence Miller is mentally retarded. You mentioned that before. I'm not saying that insensitively. This is the dialogue that was written. You say that the patient Clarence Miller is mentally retarded. How dangerous would you say he is? And then you have like Sergeant Corey talking about a bunch of things in the background. And then Matthews comes back after listening to the doctor off camera. And then Matthews says, Doctor, I'm not a psychologist. Does that mean yes or no? And then Corey again is talking about a bunch of stuff. And then Matthews comes back and he says, Yes, I guess it's hard to say. Thanks for your help. So we don't have any conclusive evidence whether or not Clarence is dangerous as a mental patient because there's such chaos going on did that did it lend itself to, again, like the, the confusion of what's going on? Or do you think it just glossed over a very important point that the doctor was trying to give Matthews and that Matthews, in turn, was trying to give us the audience?
2: I kind of liked the chaos going on because it, you're leaving it to the audience to decide which of these things you're paying attention to, which of these sources of information. I think that's an interesting tool in Gene's storytelling arsenal here because if you're listening to the officer in the background, if you're listening to Sergeant Corey, you're getting completely different layer of information than you're getting if you're listening to Matthews talking to the mental hospital. And, you know, by the way, in, in my mind's eye, there is a whole extra layer of conversation going on because every time Matthews pauses to listen to the doctor from the mental hospital,
1: I'm hearing Charlie Brown's teacher Oh, totally! I get that. Also, Sergeant Corey. It's very well possible that you now Gene has this in his name bank of characters that he uses for future episodes. Say an episode called, you know, in Star Trek where you have a uh-huh. Donald Corey later on.
2: Okay, Norman, how old do you think Milo Hobson is? Just you watched the episode, right? Mm-hmm. You watched the footage. Yeah. Okay. How, how old? kind of eyeball him. How old do you think he is?
1: I'd probably say somewhere past. Forty.
2: <laughs> okay, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Later in the episode, when Matthews is having to call in to the rest of the highway patrol, okay, be on the lookout for Clarence, but also be on the lookout for lone vigilante here, he says Milo Hobson is 29 years old. What? No. Yeah, yeah, that's what he said. Now, in the script... There's a blank left there because Gene didn't know who was going to get cast in that role. And so he just left a blank in there that said, description of actor. But in the show itself, he says Milo Hobson is 29 years old. Okay, I know there's kind of an old saw about actors from this era aging at what seems like a greater rate of time. Mainly because everyone smoked so much. Mm. And that ages you. But holy cow. I, 29 years old. No way, because I also had him pegged somewhere in his mid-40s. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wonder if that's Broderick flubbing a line and we're on that 30 hours of production schedule, so no retakes, but it just it just kind of made me laugh. I was just like, 29 years old, what?
1: Yeah, probably, yeah, that's probably a flub. But the thing is, is that he is a curmudgeon. You know, like the way that he flags down Matthews and you know, he, this is a guy standing in the middle of the road, flagging down a cop car. And then all of a sudden, and he's, basically he's brandishing a shotgun. It's, it, you know, it's it's kind of like in that hunter's way where it's, it's a side-by-side shotgun and it's like draped over his arm. So it's obviously he's not, you know, it's not armed and the shells aren't in there. But he walks up to the side of the car. He opens the cop car with the gun, all, you know, draped over his arm. And he says, hey, cop. I'm like, what? like what are you doing like how is that possible can, can i jump in here and ask you a
2: question Norman? Yes. if you set that story this year do you think hobson survives to act the end of act 1 walking up to a cop car with a
1: gun you know what that's that's the strangest thing so i'm i'm like i always go back to this one question of what is kind of like the level of quote unquote innocence of the time right so you have matthews Who's in pursuit of a possible suspect going you know through this particular highway towards said suspect's last destination, supposedly, and then runs into this particular character who is dressed fairly well you know he's has a his his appearance his attire you know is very upkept. you know he is very nicely dressed and he has this shotgun and all of a sudden this guy starts berating Matthews and he's like talking about my freedoms and what is it the kids say today s m h uh, SMH. We're going to get into that point later on. I
2: I have many thoughts. Yes, no, there are many, many thoughts, thoughts about, about Hobson, yeah. for, sure, for sure. I I, I sure. Uh, I was sitting over here, you know, on your video feed, mouthing three completely different letters. And <laughs> you started with this. <laughs> and we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so scene 47. Nice. Dylan says, big area, sir. Can we get a few more units out here? Matthew says, we've got all we can spare. Got to leave some coverage in the other area. Okay, is this the beginning of, sorry, Jim, sorry, Jean-Luc, the Enterprise is the only starship in the sector. I got the exact same thing. I started cracking up when I heard that. (laughs) It's the only cop car in the sector. I also kind of felt like maybe Clarence is kind of like Lenny from Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, but he's kind of the Wish App version. He's a (laughs) gentle giant who might pose a threat
1: if he forgets his own strength. That's a really good reference though because I like I I kind of got the same thing it's like you and I watched the same episode Earl that's very strange there's later on when when Clarence makes it to Lucy's farm and then he cuts a slice of bread he drinks you know from her her fridge grabs a pitcher of milk and then hides but it's when Lucy finds him and she's unfazed at Clarence brandishing her knife and then she calmly asks for it back to defuse the situation it Totally reminded me of that scene later on in Space Seed, where McCoy did the same thing with Khan, where he's like, you know, we'll either, you know, cut my throat or he said, just make up your mind, you know, or, or let yeah, me go. Like, you know, start with the, you know, start with, the start carotid, with the carotid artery, artery. <laughs> yeah. right? And then you know, Khan says like, you know, I would like a brave man, and then McCoy says, you know, I'm just trying to avoid an argument. That's very tonally, Gene. And I saw that in that, that particular scene where she's like, hand me the knife, sit down. We, we eat like civilized people here, right? And, yep. and we're going to go f- way more into Lucy's character in the next segment. Now, I noticed in the
2: second act, r- more than the first act, watching the show on one screen while having the script up on another screen, there's a lot of ad-libbing around the script. There's nothing that materially changes the meaning of the story, Or, you know, changes up the facts. Well, okay, Hobson being 29 years old, okay. eh. Mm. But I was kind of curious if this was just part of the working cadence of Highway Patrol as its own production. Or if this is another indication that we've got to get this thing in the can in 30 hours and head back to the Ziv Productions lot.
1: I mean, there's like probably like a point in time, like with actors, where they know their lines well, and sometimes they flub their lines, or sometimes they actually, you know, during some improv, like they actually hit the emotional marks, you know, of that scene. And because time is money, and film is money, and time burning film is money, when it comes to Ziff Productions, and we know that, and we've referenced this before that you know Ziff Productions were very economical, quote unquote. I think that that's the case. You know, like if you got the scene. You know, and you conveyed the message of that, then let's move forward with that particular part of the production, right, because there's no reason why to burn more daylight or more money for that matter. yeah, we've got this much film to run through the camera, and not a foot more, right, so remember that scene when I was talking about the autopsy, and that burn was beaten by a large man, so like later on it was it was found out like by a forensic pathologist or Al that he was trampled to death by a livestock feeding frenzy, so Maybe I'm watching too much, like, current, like, Hawaii Five-0, but weren't any, like, hoof marks, you know, or that kind of, like, specific bruising on the body proof of, like, what happened? I mean, when you get trampled by, like, that many hooves, like, there's evidence to that. I'm just saying. Let's make it an episode
2: of Dark Shadows, you know, the suspect was a broad shouldered man with cloven hooves. Oh my god, it's the <laughs> devil
1: <laughs> Exactly. The magics of Megas too. I love when in films or in television when the uh the actors or whoever's like you know, monitoring the production, they actually uh, they clock how many rounds are fired. So there's a scene where Milo forgets that he fired like two shells at Clarence. And all of a sudden he like clicks and he's like, oh, my gosh, I have a beat on him. And I, m- oh, there, my shells are spent. Come on. I um, mean, you know, like, that's the kind of thing that really grates me. You know, if I had a criticism about this episode at all. And uh, I-, I-, I look forward to that in movies when they actually get that right. And yes, Doc Holliday in Tombstone, you got that wrong. At the OK Corral, I'm forever looking at you.
2: I lose track of how many productions have had 16 shots from a Mm six-shooter. I have noticed this before, and I keep meaning to bring this up, but I feel like there's room to bring it up here. At the end of each episode of Highway Patrol, there's kind of a G.I. Joe-style PSA at the end of every episode. Broder Crawford is out of character delivering some stern warning about, you know, the law of the land directly to you, the viewer. And it's, it's so stern, and it's just, like, borderline apocalyptic. And it's just like, dude, you know, this week it was leave your blood with the Red Cross, not on the highway. It, none of these PSAs are in the scripts. Gene did not write these. Someone else added these, and they probably recorded them. They batch recorded them, batch filmed them all in one session with the actor on the set. But he's so serious about it that it inadvertently becomes funny. All right, Norm, there's a whole different tone with Highway Patrol than with Mr. District Attorney. And I think we've already established that, but I think the opening VO really kind of nails it. The textbook crime, the open and shut case, seldom exists in real life. The highway patrol, like any law enforcement agency, must deal with both reasonable suspicion and reasonable doubt. And that was a quote directly from the script. Gene's painting a much more nuanced and complex portrait of law enforcement than the format of Mr. D.A. would ever have allowed. Have you noticed that?
1: Well, I thought the tone that you were talking about was... Highway Patrol, Highway Patrol. True. Yeah, we could sing the whole thing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that there's, the, there's kind of like the mission statement of the show itself for all of the writers, you know, who participate in creating scripts for the show. And then there's, I guess, maybe the way that that's the rails that Gene may or may not be trying to stay into, paint inside the numbers or, you know, color inside the lines, that kind of thing. I'm glad I'm going to, for the record, I'm I'm glad that we've returned to a script that we can really sink our teeth into from that standpoint than, say, Human Bomb, because Human Bomb for me was just like, wow, that was not in the tone of what we expected Reformed Criminal was, but I'm glad that this is more true to form for Gene than Human Bomb.
2: Now, this is something that actually came up in After Dark previously and between Norm and myself off air, that it may seem really strange to some people who know Gene for having a certain view on this topic of religion and here he is quoting Bible verses in his script. Now, on the one hand, it is important to remember, this was just American TV at the time. And The last time it came up I did some further reading in Gene's bio and found out that he started his journey away from religion as most of us think of it in his teenage years. But in 1950s America, especially with the Red Scare and the highly propagandized campaign against godless communism, there was no way in hell, no pun intended, but there it is, There's no way that Gene was going to get his worldview onto the primetime schedule. If you want an example of how TV from roughly this period handled even the slightest whiff of atheism... I will refer you to the December 23rd, 2022 edition of Roddenberry's Sci-Fi 5 podcast, covering an episode of a show that aired on that date in 1959 that featured an atheist character. And of course, by the end of that half-hour show, that character has converted to Christianity. Because if you allowed an atheist character onto American TV in the 50s, they were there to either be converted or defeated. That got me thinking, kind of, kind of sideways. Maybe we shouldn't be that surprised that Gene is dropping this into his scripts. One of our frequent writers on Sci-Fi-Five was a very dear friend of mine for over 30 years, named Shane Vaughn. I bring him into this conversation because he was an atheist, and unfortunately we lost him earlier this year. He could quote the Bible, chapter and verse, better than most people who claim to have read the thing backward and forward. Because, probably like Gene, he had had a very religious upbringing. It was part of his debating tactic because he would turn stuff around on people to make his point. I mean, not just anybody, but it was practically his hobby to debate people who were trying to use scripture to back up the worst possible worldviews and the most pungent possible politics. I love the guy like a brother, but man, he could be pretty strident about it when he got wound up. Sometimes it was kind of fun to watch. And I can see a younger gene having a similarly detailed knowledge, chapter and verse, even though in that day and age, he probably couldn't be quite the firebrand in the 1950s that my friend was, you know, up to the 2020s.
1: Well, you know, that brings up a really interesting point towards the end of this episode. I wanted to kind of pivot towards the prayer or the excerpt of the Bible that was being referenced and how it fits in with my interpretation of how it was being used against a very particular character that would be Milo Hobson in what I considered the patriarchy of nineteen fifty five versus the matriarchy of nineteen fifty five or in simpler terms, Milo Hobson versus Lucy. I've always considered, you know, Gene very forward thinking when it came to the moral complexity of his scripts and I think thought it was fascinating that uh, he crafted this interesting dichotomy between these two particular characters when it came to the fate of of Clarence you know you have Milo Hobson as the immovable object and you have Lucy as the unstoppable force you know, you have, there's an understanding, you know, in not just writing and science fiction, but kind of like in, in terms of like theoretical physics of these two forces and, and you know, and in tandem and how they work against each other or they compete against each other. But when you look at it in biblical terms, you know, we're going back to what you're talking about in biblical terms of the passage of Matthew that was, that was referenced later on by Lucy. You have somebody like a Milo. You know, who was clearly on the side of what was considered Lex Talionis, or what is known as the eye for an eye, versus Lucy, who was the Good Samaritan, the biblical parable of unparalleled mercy. You know, on the side of the immovable object we have Milo, he's fixed in his belief system. He's entitled to a fault, and he believes that come what may, his is the one and only truth. That matters in order to avenge his friend's murder, regardless of the facts or of the law. Then on the other side, you have the unstoppable force. You have Lucy, who was as unwavering as the Good Samaritan. She saw a man who needed help. She gave it to him. She didn't baby Clarence. She didn't coddle him. But she gave him enough respect to treat him like a person. No more Or no less. And this goes into the point that you were talking about with Shane. Like, as the prayer that she used stated in the end, this is exactly how she treated Clarence. From the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 35 to 40. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and... And you visited me, I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous would answer Jesus, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison and visit you? And he would answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these of my brothers, you did it to me. The stranger aspect of that particular quote is exactly what Clarence was talking about when he was saying, "I'm a stranger, you're a stranger. I can't believe in certain things because strangers don't connect that way." And Lucy was saying, "But what if they did?" This was at that dinner table. Like he was saying, "I believe that we can come together as strangers." if we just take the time to be able to do that, if we take the time to be able to accept that in this difference that we have, we can find commonality. And I love that about that scene with Lucy. But the thing is that in contrast with Hobson, with Milo, he's like, nope, he's a mental patient. He's dangerous. Therefore, he must be eliminated. And he killed my friend, period. The end, judgment served. So that, to me, that's Gene. That is so Gene in a nutshell in his writing that it just took me almost like breathless and a back because this is probably the most flagrant of his belief system that we've seen in the script so far.
2: And, and you know, kind of going back to, you know, my friend that I was talking about earlier, he, he would quote that back at people who were not following it. And
1: I think Gene is doing the same thing here. But there's a question I wanted to ask you, Earl. And I I asked this in uh, other episodes, uh, The Secret Weapon of 117 in Reformed Criminal, where religion was involved with Gene. And I think that it's interesting that someone that we know that had issues with religion, he framed Lucy's character and obviously the resolution of what happened at the end of this episode in such a way where he leans so heavily on a religious passage that it is relevant and obviously very significant for Lucy's character. But at the same time, we know that Gina's writer wrote these words for this character. So where was he at the time in his religious belief system for him to lean so heavily on this particular passage? He had
2: already, I mean, long before, I mean, long before even going to war, he had decided that yeah, the way other people were doing religion was not for him, and that he didn't buy into a lot of it. Yeah, this was this was a corner he had already turned. However, in that day and age, it was kind of expected, especially for a young man, which he, you know, still was when he turned that corner. You're going to church with mom and dad, you're still getting this information front-loaded. You are still memorizing these verses and these passages, so again, he would have an instinctive understanding, you know, having had exposure to all of that, that there are people who may hide behind a certain religious text, not necessarily just the Bible. Any, any that you care to cite on this planet, there are people who hide behind it, wave it in your face. They're not following it. They're not following the precepts in that text, They're failing to get the point. Mm -hmm. And I think Gene was low-key calling out the hypocrisy of that. Now, enough about Hobson for the moment, because he does get my blood pressure up, and I need a little bit of a break. Lucy is my favorite female character in a Gene script so far. And to some extent, she is still forced into the kind of woman-as-nurturer role that, to be honest... Gene was still putting women into all the way into Next Gen. Because you think about that show, other than Tasha Yar, who was killed off early in the show's run, the women among Next Gen's regular cast were both in nurturing roles. You know, a counselor, a doctor. So, Lucy is not exactly Major Kira, but for 1956, she's a big step in the right direction. We are a few years away from Pike not being accustomed to having a woman on the bridge, so the steps forward in this area won't always be consistent in Jean's work. But I'm glad that here, Lucy gets to be one of the characters who brings Milo Hobson to heal. That line about how her hands are ugly because they do a man's work. It's a little bit of a cliche, but I love it because it really puts Hobson in his place.
1: I mean, I also love like when she references that there's only one book of law, you know, that presides over this farm, you know, that's not... Yours, Hobson, or is not the law. It's, you know, it's, it's the book of, well, it's the Bible, right? You know, that's, it's, it's the book that governs in like her spirituality. Here's the big question though. When I was watching like Lucy and, and the way that she, that interacted, you know, with Clarence and, and, and just the, the strength of her character and kind of like the determination that she has at the very core of like who she is, even though the character of Edith Keeler was written, you know, in a fashion or after a fashion, you know, by Harlan Ellison, was Lucy the progenitor for saying Edith Keeler, who very, was much like Lucy at the source of... She had this kindness and optimism about, like, taking care of the hopelessness and the downtrodden, but she wasn't handing just handouts to people. You know, she wasn't just saying, you know, here's your free bowl of soup. Because there was one point in time when, when Spock and Kirk... And, uh, a bunch of like, kind of like the denizens that were listening to her, they were getting their, their soup and their bread at the soup kitchen at Edith Keeler's, you know, uh, establishment, you know, she said, now it's time to pay for the soup. Now it's time to listen to the optimism and the preachings of what she believes. So I found that Lucy had that same core strength. That Edith had in terms of finding the downtrodden, finding the hopelessness, finding people that don't believe that they have a future for themselves, and opening their minds to this is the potential that you have as long as you follow this specific path of civility, you know, and and belief in yourself that you can do something better.
2: Okay, you kind of blew my mind there because you're you're right. Lucy and Edith are cut from the same cloth. The only thing they are handing out is they are handing people's dignity back to them.
1: Exactly. Wow. Well, I mean, again, it's it was Harlan Ellison's concept, you know, sitting on the edge of forever. But at the same time, the Gene being executive producer, and you know, like over those seasons, there is a certain sense of this character saying, you know, and again, this is a, a matriarchal character. This is a nature versus nurture character. What I loved about Lucy in her first interactions with Clarence is that she didn't coddle him. She challenged him. Every single turn where Clarence would say, this is what happened to me. She's like, well, why? Why did this happen? Why does that have any bearing? You you know, Clarence asked her, it's like, you know, I know my prayers. Doesn't that surprise you? Why should it? She expected him to be exactly what he is as opposed to what he should be or anything that she believes that she, the, the preconceived notion of a man of his age should be. So that's what I loved about her approach to Clarence, like you're a man, you're acting like a man, you're educated like a man, be a man. Right. And this goes back to the four pillars of manhood that we talked about, you know, in, in the masculinity script, but in a different way, you know, in the, uh, from the matriarchal perspective in a non-toxic way. Thank you. Yes, exactly that way. So, and that's how Edith approached all of the people that were in her soup kitchen We want you to be better. I want you to think about things more optimistically, more hopefully, because that's the only way that you're going to be able to move forward from this predicament that we're in, in the depression. Okay.
2: Time for my blood pressure to go up. Let's talk about Milo (laughs) Hobson. Take your pulse. (laughs) This is another one of those times where it feels like Gene is way ahead of the historical curve. And it almost feels like some of these revised blue pages are being dropped in from 2023 and not 1955. There are news stories aplenty about people whose reading of the Second Amendment is such that they feel like it's the Wild West out there. They need to be armed to the teeth to walk into the farmer's market to buy rutabagas. And Hobson, for being a character written in 55, feels like that kind of person now. I get that he's upset about his friend. I can totally relate. But his behavior here is not only not the answer. He's putting everyone else at risk. He's the most dangerous person in this story because he's reacting without thinking. And eventually, he becomes a bigger danger than anyone still thinks Clarence is because Clarence obviously at that point
1: doesn't pose a threat to anyone. That brings me to a specific quote, you know, that I that I want to cite here. It's basically when Hobson says to Matthews when he flags him down, you're going to play with your radio or look for the killer. And then Matthews says, we learn how to take abuse on the job, Mr. Hobson. You can do all the criticizing you want. Hobson says, you bet I can. I'm a taxpayer. And then a few lines later, he says, you can't threaten me. I pay your salary. So technically, the city and the taxpayer pays for the privilege of having utilities like firefighters and law enforcement The elitism and the abuse of the taxpayer algebra here is staggering. He wants to talk to your manager right now. Exactly. Like, I pay the taxes, therefore I have authority over you. That's the algebra of this, which is insanity. And then at the resolution of this episode, Milo's defense for his action, when he was shooting at Clarence, he said, all right, all right. What harm's done? I didn't kill him. And what if I had? He's a nut. No good to anybody. Save the taxpayers a lot of money. Um, what? Who does he think is right? going to bury so, this guy? It, it's, it's the entitlement that blows my mind. I'm Okay, so this is into my notes. I'm going completely off script here. And I think that I'm allowed to talk about this as long as I obfuscate this in a certain way. I was a jury foreman for a specific case and I had to reconcile the voting of the jury towards a specific verdict. And there was one person in my jury pool who said, this person is homeless and he has no rights. That to me made me incredibly sad at the state of affairs of what people believe should and should not be considered human rights. Homelessness, mental illness, things of this nature do not infringe or impact on your civil rights as a citizen. Unless, of course, you have specifically committed a crime. But then that takes on a completely different designation of law enforcement. Going back to Hobson, he said that This person is no good to anybody. He's a nut. And if I killed him, that would save the taxpayers a lot of money. How does he have the right to make that decision as judge, jury, and executioner? But what really concerns me from 1955 to 2023 is that this kind of person, this Milo Hobson in that world is in this world. Today, Mm -hmm. right, where people believe they have they have the ability to influence the law because they are, quote, unquote, taxpayers. Right. So I had to take a look at what taxpayers are entitled to. And I looked at several official websites like irs.gov to see if there were any rights, either federal or civil, that came even remotely close to what Milo was flexing over over Matthews. The only taxpayer rights I could find specifically reinforce the entitlements to clear explanations of the law and the IRS procedures in all tax forms, instructions, publication notices, and correspondence. Taxpayers have the right to be informed of IRS decisions about their tax accounts and to receive clear explanations of the outcomes. Somebody like Hobson flexing the whole, I'm a taxpayer, I have the ability to do this, is wrong, patently for all the people in the back. Wrong, you're entitled, and that is all you think you are. The fact of the matter is, is that you have zero influence on what can happen in terms of these logistics. I can't repeat that strongly enough.
2: And let's talk for a moment about how Hobson treats Matthews throughout the. In mean, the moment, Matthews does not get him exactly what he wants. Okay, I'm going to upset some people and get really present-day political on this. What this immediately put me in mind of is, you know, the people who are like BACK THE BLUE! Until that day when they're storming the Capitol and beating down Capitol Police officers. That's what it reminded me of. That same kind of personality, that same kind of mental gymnastics that they go through And I also have a strong suspicion that there, at some point in his police work, Gene has to have met a real Hobson, because this this felt like he was venting on someone he couldn't say anything to at the time, but, you know, since we're Robert Wesley, and we're writing the script for a TV show, he's given it to him with both barrels. All right, Norman, we've given Clarence clearance, and even though there is not an airplane in this episode, it's that part of the show where we are trying to figure out if Gene stuck the landing in this installment of Highway Patrol.
1: How is got to ask you a question. I'm sorry to interrupt, but how is it that we always, like, revert back to the Zucker, Zucker Abrams Zucker, Abrams Zucker <laughs> reference? <laughs> is that just you and I? I guess it is. It's what? I feel like with this
2: episode, we are—thank goodness— Back to the gene of reformed criminal. Once again, we have Matthews refusing to shoot first and ask questions later. And that's really good because we also have Hobson who wants to do nothing but shoot first and just not ask any questions at all because he's that guy who absolutely has to be right. And he is going to keep shouting about how right he is. That he's not giving anyone else a chance to get him to think. That would be bad. Hobson is operating out of fear. There's a line from a certain other sci-fi movie franchise that Gene had nothing to do with, that I think a lot of people probably have committed to memory. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Hobson is the poster boy for that phrase here. He's afraid, he's angry, and you know, he's gonna be packing heat so he can go pick up some rutabagas because he's just that scared of his own shadow. But let's take that famous Yodaism back one further step. A lack of knowledge leads to fear. Unfortunately, Hobson is that personality type who is not going to accept that he lacks knowledge. He doesn't have all the facts. He doesn't even seem to want all the facts. He's not thinking. He's just reacting. 1955 or now, that can get someone killed, either himself or someone else. His lack of knowledge makes him afraid. His fear makes him angry, and he's angry enough to kill. He is the biggest threat in this story, and it's incredibly satisfying to see Gene's script really tamp down on the very, very American trope of the lone gunfighter and say, this guy is in the wrong. The police do not need help like that. A lone vigilante is as much of a threat as a threat that everyone assumes is out there maybe more. So, messages? Think, don't just react. It doesn't help anyone to let fear or lack of knowledge win. I feel like Gene scored a win here, though, because this is a story that subverts some very well-worn 1950s pop culture tropes and deflates the notion that vigilantism is the answer to anyone's problems. And that thinking, waiting for the evidence, waiting for the lab results, waiting for the science, and most of all, compassion are a better way to do things. To me, Norm, that is about as classic Roddenberry as you can get. Where did you land here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I I think that it's incredibly clear that Gene, once again, is asking us, both the audience and perhaps humanity itself, that at that cr- the very crucial point of judgment, when we are faced with one of two choices, either to follow Myle Hobson's example or to follow Lucy's example, not only to follow Lucy, but to learn from the hubris and the entitlement of Hobson. I think that Gene crafted these two particular characters, you know, when it comes to this again, these, these these two very specific forces, you know, that are weighing the balance of of Clarence's fate. It's so incredibly specifically Gene Roddenberry that it's hard to miss, and it's something that I think that we were sorely missing in Human Bomb. But again, to it's not just enough to say condemn someone who may be troubled or who is sick or is judged by society as being lesser than anyone else. It's also just not enough to give the encouragement and the strength and the support to someone that needs this, these pillars you know, of character in order to build a proper mental and emotional foundation to build a better and more stable life. Again, we're talking about Milo's interpretation of what Clarence needs, judge, jury and executioner versus what Lucy believes that Milo, that that Clarence needs just in terms of the support system, you know, and the understanding, you know, and the forgiveness of what and who he is. There's a balance that needs to be struck here, right? There's a moment where I think Gene has asked us as the audience time and again, that many of these earlier scripts of his, not only going all the way back to like Mr. District Attorney, you know, but in in Highway Patrol as well, that we have to pause and think and ask ourselves, how will my next decision affect me and the person in question as human beings? What ripple effects will this have for me and this other person or the persons involved? When I finally commit to this decision, for Hobson, one less mental patient off the chessboard of humanity is what he believes is best for everyone. But ask yourself this, if there are more Milo's out there in the world who believes that their skin color or their religion or their affluence or their societal prominence gives them the right to persecute judge and remove those in society that are anything lesser than? Then where does this leave the clearances of the world? Those who are, in fact, innocent, but will forever be guilty of just being different? Or again, for those in the back, lesser than what Milo and his kind believes, are there enough Lucys in the world to offset the balance of the equation? as I referenced earlier about the immovable object versus the unstoppable force. I guess you know, I always ask the big question, Earl, right? This is the big question for this episode. I guess my final and biggest question is, do we, you, me, the audience, do we have the courage to be Lucy in this day and age? It's one thing not to be Milo. It's another thing, and perhaps beyond remarkable, to actually choose to be a Lucy. I'd like to end my thoughts here with a quote from Gene that I believe is applicable to this choice. Jean said, quote, It is the struggle itself that is most important. We must strive to be more than what we are. It does not matter that we will not reach our ultimate goal. The effort itself yields its own reward. End quote.
2: Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry repertory players. Our cast this week featured Mark Proct as Detective Dan Matthews and Larry Nemichek as Milo Hobson. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com.
1: On the next Genealogy, Prospector. Special thanks
2: to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Tkachy. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs. Our broadcast day. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.